All right, well, we are in a teaching series. And let me just say to all the men, you are free to eat your pepperoni sticks while I teach, okay? Don't, don't feel like you've got to be proper and just put those under your seat. You just enjoy those right now while I'm teaching. I am totally okay with that. We are in a teaching series called Legacy. And what we are trying to accomplish in this teaching series is we are doing a survey of the Bible from cover to cover. And we want to look at the legacy that we have handed down to us from the men and women of the Bible over thousands of years. We want to see that the Bible is still speaking to us today. And so we've put this slide together here. You can see it on the screen. We have broken the Bible into eight sections. And we're going to spend one Sunday on each section so that we can understand the books that are in that section, what the Bible is trying to teach us in that section. And then we're going to pull somebody out of that section and share what they're teaching with us today. I told you that, uh, uh, that in each of these teachings, at each Sunday, I would give you a Bible fact. Just a fun fact about the Bible to help you understand it more. And so this week's Bible fact is this. The book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Book of Job is the, uh, of all the books that we have, it is the most ancient of all the writings it is the one that's been preserved for the longest time. How do we know this? Are you just pulling that out of thin air, Pastor? No. What we do know is this. The book of Job took place during the time of the patriarchs, which were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it doesn't say that in the book, but it gives us some clues. The first clue is this. Job lived to be about 210 years old. Now, if you've studied the Bible, you've noticed that at the beginning of creation, humans lived a whole lot longer, right? They lived seven, eight, nine hundred years back in those days. The longer that we have lived under the curse of sin, the more and more the lifespan of humanity began to shrink. And from seven, eight hundred years at the beginning till Moses, Moses lived to be 120. And from Moses until today, nobody's ever lived longer than 120, but Job lived to be about 210, which in the timeline is about the lifespan of those that lived in the time of the patriarchs. Second thing is that Job's wealth was measured by livestock. There was no currency at the time that this is a reflection of the time of the patriarchs when wealth was measured and how much livestock you have. There's no mention of the Mosaic law, which means it took place before Moses. And there's no mention of slavery in Egypt, which means it took place before Egypt which puts us in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, God is referred to as El Shaddai. And the only other time that God is referred to as El Shaddai was by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for all of these clues, we can say that Job took place during the time of the patriarchs. Now here's the other thing that we know, that Job was written by an eyewitness to the conversations that happened. To be able to record those conversations, it had to have been an eyewitness which means there's a good chance that it was Job himself that wrote it. And you say, but it's in the third person. All of the history books in the Old Testament are in the third person. Moses wrote his story in third person. Samuel wrote his story in third person. So it's very likely that Job himself wrote it. If not Job, probably one of the four friends who was with him throughout the book wrote it. So if it took place during the time of the patriarchs and it was written by somebody that was there, then we know that it was written before slavery in Egypt. Which means it's the oldest book in the Bible. The next oldest book is the book of Genesis and Moses didn't write that until almost 500 years later. 
So by 500 years at least, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. There we go. There's your fun fact about the Bible today. You now know something that you didn't know before. So if we go back to our first slide of the Bible broken into eight sections, you can see that in the first part of this teaching, we did the law and we covered the first five books of the Bible. Last week, we did the history books and we reviewed all of the history books and all of the history we have of the Israelites. And out of that, we pulled out the great women of the Old Testament and we looked at what Deborah was speaking to us today, what Ruth was speaking to us today, and what Esther was speaking to us today. So if you missed that teaching, you can go to our website, listen to it. You can go to our podcast and listen to it. But today is the third part, which means we're going to look at the poetry books. This section of the Old Testament has five books in it, and I want to break down these five books and look at what we have in the poetry section. So these books are called the poetry books, or they've also been called the wisdom books. You may have heard that before as well. These books are basically what they say. They're basically all poetry, and they're packed with wisdom. The first one is the book of Job, which we just talked about, actually takes place towards the latter half of the book of Genesis. And the book of Job explores the concept of God allowing bad things to happen to good people. So if you've ever wondered why, God, why do bad things happen to good people, then Job is the book to read. What we find is we find Job, a righteous man, a man who loved God, who did everything right in his life, and yet still suffered terribly. All of his children were killed in one freak accident. He was rich and he lost everything that he owned. He got sick and his body was covered with nasty sores. Terrible suffering. And the whole book is Job, along with four of his friends, trying to make sense of his suffering. At the end of the book, God reveals himself. Job comes to know God like never before. And God restores everything double back to Job. And we discover that through suffering, we get to know God like we've never known him before. It's a great book. The second book in our poetry books is the book of Psalms. The word psalm is actually a Greek word that means song of praise. So if you ever wondered what psalms meant, it means songs of praise. And the book of psalms is the original church hymnal book. Those of you that are old enough that have gone to church long enough that you remember hymnal books. Before the days where we put the words to the songs up on the screens, there'd be a hymnal book in the chair in front of you. And the pastor would come up and say, we're going to sing selection number 34 today. And you would flip through to find number 34, and, and you'd have the words right there. Well, the book of Psalms is the original church hymnal book. It contains 150 unique songs of praise that were written by a variety of authors over a period of approximately 1,000 years. The writers of the Psalms include Moses, King David, King Solomon, maybe even some guys you've never heard of before like Asaph and Ethan and Heman, or He-Man, if you grew up with the masters of the universe like me. But uh, the earliest Psalm was written by Moses. The latest Psalms were probably written during the, the period of Ezra after the captivity. Therefore, that's why we say that these Psalms span a thousand years. And why is the book of Psalms important? Because over that period of a thousand years, it shows us how the Israelites express themselves to God. They express themselves when they were feeling good, and they express themselves when they were feeling bad. And they praised God when they were full of joy, and they praised God when they were full of fear. 
And they express all of the emotions and the whole gamut of emotions, good and bad and everything in between. And the Psalms are so rich in teaching us about God and interacting with God and expressing ourselves to God. Then we find the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is just a collection of wise sayings. It's not really a story that kind of follows a flow and makes sense. It's just a collection of sayings. Almost every single verse in the book of Proverbs just stands alone. It's just one little wise saying after another, after another, after another. We don't really build theology off of Proverbs. We don't build what we believe about God out of the book of Proverbs. What we get out of Proverbs is everyday wisdom. It's life application, it's decision making, it's building our character. That's what we get from the book of Proverbs. This was written mostly by King Solomon. We can say for sure that 26 and a half of the 31 chapters were written by Solomon. Two and a half of the chapters were collections of sayings from wise sages, which may have been compiled by Solomon as well. And then chapter 30 is written by a guy named Agur that we know nothing about. And chapter 31 is written by a guy named Lamiel, who wrote the wisdom that he got from his mom. And so Proverbs 31 is all about the righteous woman. And, and you may have heard before of the Proverbs 31 woman. That's Lamiel who wrote everything he learned from his mom about what it means to be a righteous woman. So that means that most of the book of Proverbs would have been written by Solomon during the height of his power. But the book wasn't actually finalized in the form that we know today until 200 years later during the time of King Hezekiah. So again, we go to Proverbs for daily living, daily decision-making, great wisdom. The next book is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the writer, only identifies himself as the preacher. He opens the book of Ecclesiastes by saying, these are the words of the preacher. But he also says that he's the son of David and he's the king in Jerusalem, which means Solomon also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. This was written towards the end of his life, and it was a reflection back on his life. And it's a little bit of a bummer because what he's really reflecting back on is how much he wasted his life on. The things that he pursued after in his life, which most of them revolved around women and money, right? He spent most of his life pursuing women and money. And then at the end of his life, he looks back and realized how much time he wasted and how vain those pursuits were. And that instead, he should have been finding meaning in God and trusting God and seeking God out. And so that's what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then we've got the book Song of Solomon, who is also written by Solomon. Duh, it's the Song of Solomon. It's also been called the Song of Songs. So you may have seen some translations of the Bible where this book is called the Song of Songs, which means the greatest of all songs, just like the King of Kings means the greatest of all kings. So this was the Song of Songs, the greatest of all songs. This book is just one continuous poem. And it was probably written during his younger years as the king. Why? Because of the youthful exuberance and because he specifically mentions that he only has 140 concubines. We know by the end of his life he had 1,000. So this had to be early in his days that he only had 140. What is Song of Solomon? Song of Solomon is a steamy romance novel, all right? It is, it is just flat out a romance book, right? It's PG-13, maybe rated R. I don't know. It's a, it is a steamy romance. I remember my son Andrew, when he was 10 years old, he made a decision that he was just going to read through the Bible from cover to cover. 
And so he started in the book of Genesis, and every night he was just reading big chunks of the Bible. And I remember the night I walked into his bedroom, and I said, hey, bud, what are you reading? And he's like, Song of Solomon. And I was like, oh, it'd probably be okay for you to skip that one right now. <laughs> I was like, do you understand what you're reading? No. Okay, good. Um, so... Song of Solomon is a romance novel. It's Solomon writing about the beauty of marriage, the power of romantic love. He expresses the beauty of sexuality within marriage. It is, it is his romance, um, his experience of, of romance and romantic love. So these are the poetry books. We can gather so much out of this. But again, I keep reminding you, we need to ask when it's happening. Because even these are out of order. We've got one book that Solomon wrote in his youth. One that he wrote at the height of his power and one that he wrote at the end of his life. So you think they would put them in that order for us, but they don't. They're all out of order. So we need to understand each book in what order it's in and when it happens as we read it. All right. So last week I told you that we bypassed King David. Well, I don't want to bypass King David today. We still find a lot of King David, especially in the book of Psalms. And with it being Father's Day and an opportunity uh, to specifically to speak to men and fathers, I want to look at our legacy from King David. What are some things that King David is speaking to us today? I've got four for you, so we'll jump into these. And uh, they keep getting a little heavier. I'm just going to apologize in advance. God stirred my heart this week and, and, uh, and brought it kind of heavy. So here we go. Our legacy from King David, number one, what would King David say to you today? Your manhood is defined by your worship just as much as your conquests. All right, listen, guys, as men, we are wired for conquest. That's just how God made us, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't want to take that away. I feel like that's a part of the culture trying to emasculate men is to take away this concept that, that we are wired for conquest. Right? When we go out to hunt, we want to come home with a dead animal. Right? When uh, even for, for those guys that get into video games, why are video games so addictive? Because every time I start over, it's a new conquest. I just got eliminated. I can jump into the next battle royale. Let's do it again. Okay? We, we get hooked into it. We identify with the things that we do. Two guys meet each other that are complete strangers and they start talking to each other. What's one of the first things they're going to ask? So what do you do? Right? That's how we're wired as guys. The comedian Tim Allen, he looked at it this way. He said, you know, when it comes to work, men really don't have a choice. Our choice really is we either go to work or we go to jail. Right? That's about it. Either we are productive with our lives or we are getting in trouble. That's just how we're wired as men. We are wired for conquest. I don't know if any of you guys are like me, but uh, uh, for some reason, I just enjoy doing things more when my wife is watching. Right? Because there's just that sense of, whoo, I'm getting something done. Right? Come in from the water. Hey, baby, did you see me catch that wave out there? Was that awesome or what? And she's like, I saw you get washed up on the reef. No, not that part. Not that part. Right? You're working out, and then you notice your wife is watching, and you go, 5, 27. Right? It's just, there's something wired in us that, that we desire conquest. We desire to be noticed for the things that we do. But if that's the only way we identify as men, 
then we're only getting half the picture and we're missing out. Manhood is defined by your worship just as much as your conquests. Look at King David. Let's look at his conquests. King David, as a young man, he would kill wild animals with his bare hands. Right? He was a shepherd out in the field, and if a wild animal tried to eat his sheep, he would go out with his bare hands. He's like, I would just grab the lion by its hair and just kill it. He killed a giant as a young teenager. He was the leader of the mighty men. If you've never read about the mighty men before, this was basically the baddest entourage that ever lived. Right? These were men who could kill a thousand guys in one fight. And they all bowed down to David. David led these mighty men. And then the women would sing the songs, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. David was mighty in battle. So man, David was a man's man. He was a warrior. He was strong. He lived for conquest. He could fight. But if we stop there, that's only half the picture. We need to look at the other half of the picture, which is David's worship. As a shepherd, he would spend hours in isolation out on the hillsides. No other human beings to talk to, only his sheep. And what would he do for those hours upon end? He would play his harp and sing to God. And you're like, pastor, playing the harp, you're talking some hippie kind of stuff here. No, this was David. And he played his harp and he worshiped God. David would dance in an undignified way. He'd get so excited about worshiping God, he would dance and he would throw off his outer coat and just dance around in his big underwear robe, right? Because he didn't care. He was dancing for God. He was a worshiper. David wrote 73 worship songs that ended up in the Bible. Think about that. There may be people today who've written more than 73 songs, but nobody's written 73 songs that ended up in the Bible but King David. And David was known as a man after God's own heart. I want to focus on the fact that he was known as a man after God's own heart. He was a man who lived for conquest, but he was also a man who passionately worshiped God. And it's in both of those things, guys, that we find the fullness of our manhood. We go after conquests. We go after the hunt. We go after the next biggest wave. But man, we also just worship God. And if I got to be undignified, I'll be undignified. And if you think it's weak to dance around and sing, I don't care. Because it's part of what makes me a man is to worship with all of my hearts. Number two, what would King David say to us today? He would say, you show your strength in your humility and your repentance. And this is counter to the culture. This is not what the culture would teach us. Men, the culture would teach us that we show our strength by always being right. Or one of our favorite ways to show strength is to be angry. Right? Because being angry makes us feel strong. We like being angry because when we get angry and loud, people listen. When we get angry, people back away. When we get angry, people show respect. And so we feel like, whoo, I am strong when I'm angry. And King David today would say, no, you're not strong when you're angry. You're strong when you're broken. And in your brokenness, you repent. When I say I'm angry, I feel strong. But when I say I'm sorry, that's when God sees me as strong. 
And that's when a true godly strength comes out of me. Look at one of the worship songs that David wrote. David committed a horrible sin. He slept with a woman who wasn't his wife. She was married to another man. And then to cover it up, he had that other man put to death. And when the prophet came and confronted him for his sin, he didn't respond with, hey, I'm the king. I'm always right. I can do whatever I want. How dare you accuse me? No. When the prophet came to him, he went and he wrote this song, Psalm 51. Listen to this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says, I know my transgressions. What does that mean? I'm aware of them. I'm not in denial. I understand my shortcomings. I understand where I fall into sin. He was so aware of it, in fact, he used three different words to describe his sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. He says, I know it. And not only do I know it, but I know that it's against God and God alone that I have sinned. And so he says, God, would you cleanse me? God, would you wash me? God, would you show compassion for me? And then in verse 10, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Think about that. He says, God, I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware of how broken I am. And in my brokenness, I'm saying, God, don't leave me. Give me a clean heart. Give me a willing spirit, a spirit that's willing to keep following you. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And he says, if you will do these things, God, then I will do ministry. Then I will go out and touch other people's lives. I will teach transgressors your way, and I will see sinners be converted to you. David showed his strength in his humility and his repentance, not just in demanding that he's right and showing anger. We can show that strength too. Number three, God is not afraid of raw emotion. God is not afraid of raw emotion. Now, I know, guys, we grow up and our dads told us, don't ever let anybody see you cry. Real men don't cry. We got to be tough. We got to be stoic. We can't let anybody know that we've been shaken. But that's just not true. God is not afraid of raw emotion, and we shouldn't be either. Now, I'll just be transparent here with you guys. I'm a crier, okay? I cry all the time. And I don't think it takes away from my manhood one bit. Man, we went to the movies last month. We went and saw that new movie, I Can Only Imagine, about the Mercy Me song and the story behind it. I didn't think I was going to get through the movie. It was, I was so emotionally distraught. I didn't think I was going to make it. I thought I was going to have to walk out. I mean, I didn't just have a tear trickling down my cheek. 
I was chest heaving, snot coming off my chin, uncontrollable, oh my goodness, and all I had was one greasy popcorn napkin, right? And I'm trying to control myself. I was just emotionally exhausted. And then last month, we're flying home from our vacation, and you know, Alaska Airlines lets you watch movies, and you can pick from all these movies. So I'm going through the movies, and I'm like, oh, Collateral Beauty, that's a great movie. Whew, that was a terrible choice on an airplane. Here, I at least in a movie theater, the lights are all off. On the airplane, the lights are all on. I'm watching Collateral Beauty. Now I'm crying like a baby. My wife's laughing at me like, what's wrong with you? We're on an airplane. It's just a good movie. Leave me alone. I just got... Expressing raw emotion does not take away from our manhood. It actually draws us closer to God. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he slayed a giant, but because he wasn't afraid to share his emotions with God. Let's read Psalm 6. This is another worship song that David wrote that ended up in the Bible. Starting in verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me, which means discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. That word pining means wasting. For I am wasting away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. David is going through something. And in this psalm, he never says what it is that he's going through. But he is in great distress. He says, I'm wasting away, God. Whatever this thing is, it's wearing me out. I'm almost done. I don't have much fight left in me. He says, it hurts in my bones. Even my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. And then he cries out, how long, God? How long do I have to feel this way? How long do I have to keep going through this? Don't you see I'm in pain? He says, rescue me, God. Don't let me die from this. He believed he was going to die from whatever he was going through. He says, don't let me die from this, God. Nobody can praise you when they're dead. Don't let me die from this. He says, I'm weary with my sighing. Other translations use the word moaning, right? He's just in such dismay. He's just like I can just picture him folded over, right? Doubled over in the fetal position, just moaning before God. And then he says, every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. He's like, man, I cry myself to sleep every night. So many tears, my bed's like a waterbed. He says, my eyes have wasted away because of my grief. I'm getting old because of my adversaries. This is a man sharing raw emotion before God. And it doesn't make him any less of a man. He's saying, God, I cry myself to sleep every night. I'm wasting away. I think I'm going to die. I don't think I can make it through another day. And then he finishes with the declaration, 
For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. In the midst of his weeping, in the midst of his deep distress, and sharing his emotion to God, he is suddenly strengthened by his faith. And he says, the Lord has heard me crying. The Lord has heard my desperate cries. The Lord receives my prayer. And my enemies are going to be ashamed. My enemies are going to be turned away. God is not afraid of our raw emotion. And when we're not afraid to express it to God, we will discover God in a whole new way in the midst of our pain. And our faith will rise up as never before. But we've got to be courageous enough to express it. And I'm going to finish with this last one, number four. And this one, whew. Here I am calling myself a crier. I had a hard time even writing this one this week, even getting to the point where I could teach it. Number four, don't rationalize your sin. Your children are watching. Don't rationalize your sin. Your children are watching. And they're going to do what they see you doing. And it is a legacy that we will pass down. David was known for his sexual sin and his murder. Committed sin with this woman that wasn't his wife and then had her husband put to death. And we focus in on that that was David's sexual sin. But that was not his only sexual sin. David had seven wives and ten concubines. That means he had 17 women that he was sleeping with. And you can say, well, it was permitted. It was the time of the kings. The kings were permitted to do that. Just because it was permitted doesn't mean that God was okay with it. And because David was never willing to deal with the sexual sin in his life, his children repeated the model back to him. Look at what happened to David's children. His son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Then his other son, Absalom, two years later, murdered Amnon. Then Absalom rebels against his father, David, tries to take the kingdom away from him. And when David went into hiding, what did Absalom do? He went and slept with all ten of his dad's concubines. And he did it in a very public way so everybody knew exactly what he was doing. And then his son, Solomon... Who David could sleep with 17 women? Well, his son multiplied that sin exponentially to the point where he could sleep with 1,000 women, 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women that he could sleep with whenever he wanted to. David was not willing to deal with the sexual sin that was in his life, and because he wasn't willing to deal with it, his children modeled it back to him. Dads, we cannot rationalize our sin. We cannot say to our children, well, you know what? You just do what I say, not what I do. That doesn't work. They're going to do what we do. We can try to rationalize it away. Oh, I just look at a little porn on my computer, but my kids don't know. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Well, I get angry at my wife and push her around a little bit, but that's okay. That's just part of being a man. No, it's not. No, it's not. We need to stop rationalizing our sins because our children are watching. 
I'm going to invite the worship team to come back today. I am grateful that my children never saw me at my worst. But I have told them who I was. They know that I was a drug addict. That on the streets I committed horrible sexual sins. That as a young man I was addicted to pornography. And then I tell them about Jesus and how he changed my life and how I'm not that person anymore. But that doesn't mean I'm perfect. The sins my children see today are a little bit different, but they're still sins. The worst one my children see is anger. And then there's times they do something that just makes me so angry and I just snap and I just yell at them. And I can rationalize it. I can try to make it okay. Well, I'm the dad. I'm supposed to yell. That's okay. They'll get over it. They're kids. They, they just learn a lesson. No, it's not okay. And it's not okay that I do that. And I have to go back to my children and my brokenness and say, listen, guys, what you did was wrong, but what I did was wrong too. And this is not who I want to be. And I'm going to deal with my anger. I'm not going to rationalize it because I don't want to pass it on to my kids. My dad passed it down to me, and I grew up with it. And I want to break that. I don't want it continued passed down in my family. The Holy Spirit would challenge us today. What sins are we rationalizing? What are we trying to excuse away? What are we trying to be okay with because we don't want to deal with it? But our choice to not deal with it is just passing it down to our children. And today we make a decision to say, I don't want this in my family line. This is not what I want to model. And this is not what I want my children to become. Will you stand with me today as we close? King David is speaking to us today through the word of God challenging us to find a new level of our definition of our manhood challenging us to what God sees as strong not what the world tells us is strong challenging us and calling us to bring forth the emotion that we've locked up deep inside of us because we just don't show emotion and God is calling it out of us and today I believe that there is a spirit of repentance that God is calling out of us that he wants to speak to us today about what sin is in our lives. We've tried to avoid it. We've tried to rationalize it. We've tried to be okay with it. And today is the day that God is just saying, let's not be okay with it anymore. Let's not settle for it. We might get by with it. It might not destroy our family. It might not destroy our marriage. We might, you know, stay married. We might have grandkids. But that doesn't mean that it's God's best for our family and God's best for the generations. Let's not settle for it. Right now, God, would you just begin to speak to us? I just pray this spirit of repentance would just sweep over this place. That, Lord, though we focused on the men today because it's Father's Day, that this word is not just for men. It's for everyone here. Men and women, moms and dads, children, Oh, that you would call all of us to a place of repentance today. Oh, that we would no longer settle. 
Oh, but God, in our brokenness, we would humble ourselves before you. We would repent before you. We would pour out our brokenness before you. Oh, that you might change us. God, that you might take our faith to a whole new place. That you might put in us a clean heart and a new willing spirit. That we don't have to stay stuck in the same old sin, the same old place. Oh, there's a generation that needs us, God. There's a world that needs us. Right here on our island, there are tens of thousands of people that need Jesus. And they need us to portray what true strength is, what true brokenness is, what true repentance is. We've got a generation of children growing up that needs fathers and mothers to lead them to Christ. So God, would you call something out of us today? Take us to a new place of repentance and a new place of brokenness, God. Jesus, would you do that right now? Would your word just begin to be a double-edged sword deep in our spirit, God? Deep in our spirit, drawing something out that we have not wanted to touch. Drawing something out that we have not wanted to deal with. Not drawing it out in such a way that would shame us or publicly embarrass us. But just drawing it out in such a way, God, that we would allow you to transform us. Let us worship you right now in our brokenness. Let us worship you right now in our repentance, God. We're just going to go into good, good Father one more time. And as we worship, I just want to invite you to do whatever you need to do to respond to God. If you need to come forward and make these stairs your altar to meet with God, then please come forward. If you just need to kneel down right at your chair and make that your altar, do that. But I want to invite you right now as this spirit of repentance sweeps over this place that you be free to respond to God and seek after God as we sing this song.